So how you're doing? Well, yeah, four more days and then the holidays start. All those parents are looking forward to that. At least you get a couple of days off with Easter, I guess. You can take a seat, Callum. Thank you. So how you're doing? You good? Yeah. yeah, that's good. So um, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that I like Christmas. And then now I can see you're thinking, it's Easter next week and you're talking Christmas. <laughs> There's a reason for that. What I love about, about Christmas is the preparation. I love listening to the carols, and I love going out and buying gifts, and I am one of those crazy people who I absolutely love wrapping up gifts. I really do. I would, I would have loved one of those jobs, you know, at the mall where I got to wrap gifts. Doesn't matter who it's for. I just, I just love that. And so I have this thing about, I like to prepare for things. And so even at Christmas, like, I do, I do what I call seasonal devotionals, right? So if it's Christmas, I'll do a devotion around Christmas for a time. And with it being Easter, I've been doing a similar thing about preparing for Easter and, and having devotionals done. And I've read a couple, and what was interesting is this, this time I did a 40-day Lent thing that I was reading, like, just because I did, and it was there, and it was Easter, and it was going to work. Um, and so I wanted to share this morning on some stuff about preparing you for Easter. Because I don't think we can go into things, we can't go into Christmas and we can't go into Easter without actually preparing ourselves for it. You can't just rock up and go, okay, God hit me with something awesome at Easter if you haven't actually prepared for it. So this morning, we're going to start preparing our hearts. It's Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus had his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So we're going to begin. And hopefully for the rest of this week, your heart will be prepared so that when you come next Sunday, and on Easter Sunday, you're going to have this amazing, victorious experience. Yeah? Is that good? All right. So I called this the promises of Easter because there are promises within Easter that when I was doing these devotionals that became quite obvious to me that I had missed before. And you've got to understand, I've been, a, I've been saved for over 25 years, so I find it exciting when I see something new that I missed. Um, so, yeah. Last week, I went and saw Beauty and the Beast. Right. I, I like musicals, so it's all good. And I had a great time, enjoyed the movie. I am also one of those odd people that I've spoken to who have seen it. I preferred the cartoon. That's just me. I, I preferred the cartoon for, for, I like cartoons, you know. I mean, I saw Moana, absolutely loved it. Craig thought it was terrible. <laughs> I actually had to bribe him to go, but, you know. Um, and one of the things that does disappoint me a little bit is the fact that, that I can't make Seth come with me anymore because he's too old and he's just like, no, I'm not. Um, and, and Madison just is not, that's not really her thing anymore because she's too old. So I have, I, luckily I have a couple of nieces and nephews who are really young. So when I want to go to a cartoon, I drag them with me. But it's thinking about the beauty and the beast. And do you, you know the story, how, how beauty fell in love with the beast and consequently, you know, he became beautiful? You know that? You know that story? And what I find interesting about that is, if you think about it, what if beauty didn't go? Because the rose was already dying, and before she turns up on the scene, what if she never went to him? What if her father didn't screw things up and she had to go to the, to the beast? What would have happened to the beast? What would have happened to, to all the other people in the enchanted castle? Or even worse, what if beauty went, but she never fell in love with the beast? I think that would be a tragedy. 
one of the things that I've come to realize is that there is actually a beast inside each one of us. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, what? There is. What about when someone cuts you off when you're driving? You know? You flick them the finger, your mouth off. Maybe you're traveling behind them so you got really close behind their car. Maybe you flick your lights onto high beam. There's a beast that lives inside you. What if someone you don't like gets a promotion at work? You make a snark, snarky comment. You think un, unpleasant thoughts about them. There is a beast that lives in you. There is someone who brings the beast out of me, and it's a league player by the name of Willie Mason. Soon as he turns up, and honestly, I can feel it rising, and I want awful things to happen to him, and I want someone to smash him on the field so that he's injured and never plays again in his life. It's honestly, this man, why? Because he's always bagging out New Zealand all the time. And I, if I read an article and he's in it, I get so angry. And I know that the beast rises. Thing is, we all do it. We all have a beast within us. The apostle Paul had a similar struggle. In Romans uh, chapter 7 verse 15, he says, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to do. I do what I hate. See, the Bible is actually full of stories where the beast rears its ugly head. There is King Saul who chases down young David with a spear. That's the beast rising. There is Shechem who wants Diana so much that he takes her and rapes her. Then her brothers get the beast arises within them and they take Shechem and his friends and they murder them. You have Lot selling out Sodom. And we have Herod murdering toddlers in Bethlehem. There is a beast that rises within us. This beast was really, really obvious when the day that Christ died. You see, first of all, it starts off with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the disciples slept because they were thinking only of themselves. Later on, some of them even denied who he was. Herod wanted to put on a show, so he arranged a big show for the Jews. Pilate just wanted out of the whole situation. And what did the soldiers want? The soldiers wanted his blood. You see, the first promise that we get from God is the promise that we find in the spit of the soldier, and is that I will bear your dark side. They whipped Jesus. The whip consisted, if you didn't know, of uh, nine strips of leather that had rocks and glass and, and stone. They also used this whip to beat the accused, whoever the accused was. 39 lashes was actually the most they were allowed to give, but they always stopped before someone died. So nine times out of 10, most people didn't get to the 39 lashes. But they did lash Jesus 39 times. The whipping was the first deed that the soldiers did. The third thing they did was the crucifixion. And we, don't have, we can't fault them for this because they were ordered to do it. They were commanded to do it. They were just following orders. But what's really hard to understand is what happened between him being whipped and him being crucified. In Matthew 27, verse 26, it says, Then Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after he had whipped Jesus, he gave him to the Roman soldiers to be taken away and crucified. But first they took him to the armory and called up the entire contingent. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. 
made him a crown of long thorns and put it on his head, and placed a stick in his right hand as a scepter. And now before him in mockery, Hail, King of the Jews, they yelled. And they spat on him and grabbed the stick and beat him on the head with it. After the mockery, they took off the robe and put his own garment on him again and took him out to crucify him. The soldier's assignment was simple. Take the Nazarene, whip him, get him on the hill, crucify him. That's it. That's all they had to do. But they decided to have some fun first. And what they did is they took this half-dead carpenter and they mocked him and they ridiculed him. And for some unknown reason, they took pleasure on spitting on a half-dead man. Maybe you haven't actually spat on anyone, but do you know what that does when you do? When you spit on someone, it doesn't actually hurt you. It doesn't hurt the body at all. But what it does is it degrades the soul. And that was what they were after. You, maybe you don't spit on people. But have you gossiped? Have you slandered? Have you raised your hand in anger? Rolled your eyes in arrogance at someone? Ever made someone feel bad just so you could feel a little bit better about yourself? What we have to do in this moment and what this is about is about allowing the spit of the soldiers to symbolize the filth that lives in our hearts. And then we need to observe what Jesus did with that filth. And do you know what he did? He carried it to the cross. He didn't wipe it off his face. He took it with him and carried it to the cross. And here's where the similarity between the Beauty and the Beast story ends. You see, in the story of Beauty and the Beast, Beauty kisses the beast. But in our story, our beauty becomes the beast so that we could become the beauty. See, Jesus changes places with us. You see, we, like Abraham, were under a curse, but Jesus changed places with us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. What if our beauty had not come? What if our beauty hadn't cared? Then we would have remained a beast forever. But you know what? Our beauty did come, and our beauty did love, and our beauty has changed places with us so that we are now beauty and he became the beast. The second promise that I want you to look at is the one found in the crown of thorns. And that one is saying, I loved you enough to become one of you. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I honestly don't think we really understand what that means. We can think in our head, we go, yep, you know, God came down, became man. And we think it was that easy. And it was, because he's God. But if you think about it, the eternal being who had never, ever been restrained in any way whatsoever bound himself to time. He bound himself into a human body. He went from being a spirit that could move anywhere and do anything, and he bound himself into flesh and blood. He suddenly had bone-weary muscles to contend with. He suddenly had to, to uh, this reach that used to be limitless into galaxies suddenly could only stretch out as far as a man's arm. 
his speed where he used to fly through the galaxies suddenly became as fast as a man could run. You have to understand, when he bound himself to become a man, it was more than just the word becoming flesh. What was most remarkable about this is that he surrendered not only his timelessness and he surrendered not only his boundlessness, but he also surrendered his sinlessness. See, throughout scripture, thorns actually symbolize not sin, but the consequence of sin. If you remember in Eden, Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed the land. Genesis 3.17, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Brambles on the earth are actually a product of sin in our heart. The fruit of sin is thorns. Thorns that are sharp, that are prickly, that, that cut. And if the fruit of sin is thorns, then isn't the thorny crown that Christ wears a symbol of, of our sin that pierced his heart? And what is the fruit of sin? Shame. It's disgrace, it's fear, discouragement, anxiety, and having our heart been caught up in those things. I know even this week I've felt those things. But the heart of Jesus, you have to understand, had never felt any of those. He had never been cut by the thorns of, uh, the thorns of sin. What you and I face daily, he has never known. Anxiety, he never worried. Guilty, he was never guilty. Fear, he never left the presence of God. See, Jesus never knew the fruits of these sin until he became sin for us. And when he did, when he became sin for us, all of those emotions fell upon him. And all of a sudden, he felt anxious, and he felt guilty, and he felt alone. Matthew 27 Verse 46, and he cries out and he says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That is not the cry of a saint, but that is the cry of the sinner. I know that cry. I cried that myself before I got saved. Do you, do you remember doing that? The thing you have to remember is he became the sin so you didn't have to. So when you see those crown of thorns, remember he loved you enough to do this for you. The next promise I wanted to look at is God's promise in the nails, which is, I forgive you. This one I find quite fascinating because it's something that we don't really want to talk about because it's all about what we do. One of the things, um, I used to work for my dad. He was a painter by trade. And during high school, I would work for him on a Saturday, and then when I left high school, I worked for him, with him for a time. One of the things we used to do is we, he would go in and paint these houses after they were built. But I always knew that within... Four to six weeks, we'll be back at that house touching up something. And I used to say to him, why, why do we have to do that? And he said to me, well, what happens is, is the builder goes through, and he does his thing. We come in and paint. And then the builder always says to the new owner of the house, make a list of everything that, that was wrong. Make a list of things that need to be fixed up. So 
this list, would, the, the, the owner of the house would dwell in this house and they'd start taking note of whatever was wrong. Maybe the door was hung crooked. Maybe they had messed up the kitchen cupboards or they hadn't put the towel rails on or the bathroom, you know, the shower door when you opened it went the wrong way. You know, whatever it was. And so the builder would then go back in and fix it and then Dad, of course, would have to go back in and, and touch up the paintwork. And I was thinking about that. It's like when we ask Jesus into our heart, he comes and he dwells in us and we become his home. When you move into a new home and you start listing all the things that are wrong, it can be slightly uncomfortable, particularly for us. And I often think, what did he, what did he see in my life? Did he see that the, the door hinges to my prayer room were a little rusty? Maybe the oven called jealousy kind of overheats a bit. Maybe the hot water cupboard, which is stuffed full of all my regrets, is just jammed. Has he noticed that uh, my office is actually so cluttered with secrets and I don't want anyone in there? Did he realize that I actually kind of need to lift the blinds up every day because I need the sunlight to come in to wash away the negativity? I don't know what your shortcomings are. I only know what my shortcomings are. And I don't want you to know them. I don't want those things put on public display for people. And I'm sure you don't want yours put on public display for people. Thing is, they actually were. You just haven't seen it. I want you to think of Jesus up on the hill. And the soldiers are up there. And they shove him to the ground. And they lay him across the beam. And then they kneel on his forearm and they grab a spike and the mallet and they're going to smack his hand into the thing. Now at any stage, he could have stopped this process. He could have halted it in its tracks. He could have even fought them, but he didn't. He turns his face and he looks at the soldier and he looks at the hammer and he looks at the spike. And he looks at his hand. The hands of Jesus are actually very powerful, and not just because he was a carpenter, and they would have been powerful, strong hands in the natural because he was a carpenter. But these are the hands that stilled the seas. These are the hands that broke bread and fed 5,000 people. These are the hands that delivered the sick, that raised people from the dead, that set free people from demonic forces. And the whole time, these hands are very powerful. And not once does he fight them, not once does he clench his fists. But he leaves his hands open. Eventually, the mallet begins to fly, and the skin rips, and blood begins to drip. And then it begins to flow. We know why Jesus didn't resist, right? Because he loves us. Yeah? And that's true. It's so true. But he saw something else there that made him stay. He saw something else. He saw the mallet, yeah. He saw the soldier, he saw the spike, but there was something else. And in Colossians 2, 13, it says, you were dead in sins and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. Then he gave you a share in the very life of Christ, for he forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you. The list of his commands, which you had not obeyed. He took this list of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. See, between his hands and the wood is a list of all your sins. Between Christ's hands and the wood is a list of all your shortcomings, all your failings, everything you, when you screw up, it's all there. The lust, the lies, your greedy moments, your anger, the prodigal years that you spend away from him, 
It dangles from the cross, an itemized catalog of everything you've done. Thing is, Jesus knew. He saw the list. And you know what kept him from resisting? Was the fact that he knew that the source of those sins was you. He knew that his blood had to cover those sins. And he thought eternity without you, he couldn't do it. So he left his hands open. He chose the nails. In all honesty, if the soldier hadn't swung the mallet, Jesus would have done it for himself. The hand squeezing the handle was not a Roman soldier. The force behind the hammer was not actually an angry mob. And the verdict of his death was not done, was not put in place because of jealous Jews. Jesus himself chose the nails. He knew that the purpose was to cover your sins, to be hidden by his sacrifice, covered by his blood. The same hand that stilled the seas will actually still your guilt. And the same hands that cleanse the temple will actually cleanse your heart. And the same hand is the hand of God, and the nail is the nail of God. And Jesus, as he opens up his hands to receive that nail, the doors of heaven have opened for us. The next promise is the one about the sign, God's promise through the sign, which means he's going to speak to you in your language. Signs are important, whether they're obvious signs like road signs or whether they're, they're you know, exit signs, whether they're ignite signs, whatever. Signs are really important. Those are the obvious ones. There's also some really unobvious signs. I was reminded of those signs that we miss, and we miss them just this week. We have this student, and her name is Jenna, and she's as dipsy as they come, and I'm being kind. Anyway, she was, we managed to get um, some uh, a contacts and some funding for her to sit her learner license, because she's 16. She goes off and does it. Now, we have to, it has to be paid for, obviously, so, which is fine. You know, she, she does the, the training for it, goes to sit the license. She's told when she makes the appointment. You cannot make the appointment before 9.30, and you cannot make the appointment after 1.30. Your appointment time, you must make it between 9.30 and 1.30, because Jenna lives in Pukekohe, but the test was being set in AA in Manukau. This is said to her 30 seconds before she walks to the window. She walks up to the window and makes her appointment for 8.45. It's like, what did you do? Why did you do that? I don't know. What time were you told to make the appointment between? Oh, between 9.30 and 1.30. So why did you make it for 8.45? I don't know. So, go straight back up to the window. We need to change this appointment time. Do you know that just to change the appointment time that you made five minutes before cost $45? Jenna, do you have $45? No. Okay. Suck it up, pay the $45. And then she fails. <laughs> Fine. Okay, so we arranged this week for her to, uh, this the week just gone, for her to have a refresher course and we will rebook the test. So we made this this time and and so she was had to go to the Marae, the Papakura Marae, to do the refresher course. That was fine. Unfortunately, this one particular day, all of our staff was tied up in professional development, so Chantelle, who's our boss, she had to actually go and pick Jenna up. But Jenna couldn't wait until the end of the day with everybody else. She had to be picked up earlier because she had a pre-op appointment. Fine, we can, we can do that. So the deal is that when everybody else went off to AA to, rebook their, to book their appointments, she had to stay at the marae and would get picked up. Chantelle goes to the marae, there's no one there. She wanders around the marae, 
where's this kid? She's not here. Okay. She rings the people. Where are, where are you guys? Oh, we're, we're at AA. She goes, you guys are supposed to leave Jenna here. Oh, we thought we did. She's not here. Oh, she must be with the other guys. Shindel hops in the car, drives to Manukau AA, gets there. There's no Jenna. Where is this kid? Tries to get a hold of her, can't get a hold of her. So Shintao drives back to the Marae, and there's Jinnah sitting at the front steps. And she tells, where were you? I was here. I was here and you weren't here, Jinnah. Where, where have you been? No, no, I was here. I saw you. You what? I, I saw you walking around. Did you not think I was here for you, Jinnah? I said I was coming to pick you up. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know if you were here for me. I, I, the only reason I was coming here was to pick you up. Why did you not call out to me? Well, well, maybe you were here for someone else. Jenna, was anyone else here? No, just me. Okay. Chantel, by this stage, is so angry. She said, get in the car. And they drive from Papakura to Pukakoi to drop Jenna home in total silence. And there's no radio because Chantel's just like, I'm so angry. And the whole time Chantel's fuming and inside, she's like, I'm going to punch this kid. I'm going to, you know, she was just so furious. And then they get home to Jenna's house. Jenna hops out and she says, wow, that was a really peaceful drive. I feel really refreshed and really, get out! <laughs> Jenna goes inside, Chantal drives home, rings me, what the? <laughs> See, Jenna missed all the signs that Chantal was losing her temper. Totally missed. You can feel the atmosphere when someone's not happy with you, right? Yeah, not her. <laughs> the thing is, we do that all the time with God. We miss what he's saying to us. We miss the signs that he has for us. But the good thing is that he gives us lots and lots of signs. He gave us the rainbow after the flood to show his covenant. He circumcision identifies who God's people are. The stars portray the size of his family. Communion is the sign of his death. The baptism is a sign of our rebirth, our spiritual rebirth. All of these things are symbols that actually point to a greater truth. The most touching sign, however, is found on the cross. It is a trilingual, hand-painted, wooden, crude sign. It says in John 19, verse 19, Pilate wrote a sign and had it placed on the cross, and it read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was right next to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The Jewish high priest objected. Don't write, they said to Pilate, the king of the Jews. Make it, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. This sign actually reveals two truths about, about God's desire to reach the world. The first one is that there is no person he will not use. The sign bears immediate fruit. Remember the response of the criminal? His moments from death that he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Luke seems to make the connection between, between the reading of the sign and the offering of the prayer. In Luke 23, 38, he says, printed over him was a sign. This is the king of the Jews. Four verses later, in, in verse 42, the thief turns and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, the thief knows he is in a, in a bad situation. And he turns his head, and he reads that Jesus is king, and then he asks him for help. This sign is actually the first sign used to proclaim the gospel. Pilate is actually technically the first evangelist that we've ever had, because he wrote the sign. 
See, we have used countless things since then. We've used radio, we've used books, we've used sermons, whatever we can to preach the, to, the, to the lost. And because of that sign, that one sign, a soul was saved. See, Pilate didn't intend to spread the gospel. In fact, what he was trying to do was to say, this is what happens when people try to out-glorify Rome. But instead, God used it to spread the gospel. The second thing that this, tr this truth that it reveals to us is that there is no language that God will not speak. See, everyone passing by could read that sign. You see, whether you, could, you could read in either Hebrew, Latin, or Greek. Hebrew is the language of Israel, which is the language of religion. Latin is the language of Rome, which was the law and the government. And the Greek was the language of your philosophers and your arts. It's the language of culture. And in every single one of those areas, in every single one of those spheres, Christ was proclaimed as king. You see, the message is the same, but the language was different. And since Jesus was a king for all people, all those areas, it had to be lifted up and spoken in those languages. There is no language he will not speak. He will use whatever means he has to to reach you. So what is he speaking to you now? Does he use the language of abundance? Is your stomach full? Your bills are paid? You got a little savings going on? Or is he speaking to you in the language of need? God cares for you and he's going to take care of you, so he may, you have to feel that need so you can know that he's true. What about the language of affliction? Many people have found Jesus in the halls of, of the hospital and by the sickbed. He will speak to you how he needs to, because there is no language that he will not speak if it means he can reach you. The next thing I want to look at is God's promise through the two crosses. And that promise is that I will let you choose. And this one is actually really important. Abel and Cain are both sons of Adam. Abel chooses God, Cain chooses murder, and God lets him. Abraham and Lot are both pilgrims in Canaan. Abraham chooses God, Lot chooses Sodom, and God lets him. David and Saul are both kings of Israel. David chooses God, Saul chooses power, and God lets him. Peter and Judas both deny Jesus. Peter seeks mercy. Judas seeks death. God lets him. God allows us to make our own choices. God gives us eternal choices, but they do bear eternal consequences. Do you ever wonder why there was only two crosses next to Jesus? Why not six? Or ten. In fact, quite often there would, be, there would be multiple crosses up there. But for some reason, this particular day, there were three. And Jesus is in the middle. Why is he not on the right? Why is he not on the left? Why was Jesus in the middle? To represent that he gives us a choice. Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals hanging alongside cursed him. Some Messiah you are. Save yourself. Save us. But the other one made him shut up. Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as him. We deserve this, but not him. He did nothing to deserve this. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he said, don't worry, I will. Today you will join with me in paradise. We always rejoice over that penitent thief, don't we? Isn't that just an awesome story about just right on your deathbed and you make that commitment to God and we talk about that. But what of the other guy? What of the other thief? 
wouldn't a personal invitation be, be appropriate at that time? Wouldn't a word of persuasion be called for? Couldn't Jesus have said something more? I mean, we read in the Bible that, that the shepherd left 99 sheep to go and get one. And we read about how the housewife went hunting down that one gold coin that was missing, while, even though she still had nine. And yeah, it's true. The shepherd did go and find the one sheep, and the woman did search for her house and find one gold coin. But if you remember about the prodigal son, the father, if you remember, does nothing. You see, the sheep was lost innocently, the coin was lost irresponsibly, but the prodigal son left intentionally. The father gave him a choice. Jesus gave those criminals a choice. Think about the thief who repented. We know a little bit about him. It's obvious he's a thief. It's obvious he's a criminal. He's obviously made bad choices in his life. He's had the wrong friends, he picked the wrong career path, he has the wrong morals. Is he enjoying the fruits of that particular choices in his life? No. He's enjoying the fruits of the one good choice he made. You may have made some bad choices in your life. I've made bad choices in my life. Maybe you chose the wrong group of friends. Maybe you have got the wrong career. Maybe you even chose the wrong spouse. You can look back over your life and say, if only I can make up for those things. You know what? There's one choice you can make that will make up for those things. And that is to choose Jesus. It makes up for every bad choice you've ever made. But the choice is yours. Two men saw the same Jesus. One chose to pray to him. And Jesus loved him enough to let him. The other one chose to mock him. And Jesus loved him enough to let him. He allowed him the choice and he does the same for us. And he loves you enough to let you do that. God's promise in the garment is that I will give you my robe. We, uh, at the end of every year, we take our staff out and we go out for dinner and stuff, uh, for lunch. We, two years ago, we went to Langer Mate. If you've never been, you need to go. It's amazing. It's eight different restaurants all inside one. And so like, but it's, 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 it's a smorgasbord, but it's upper class. So you go there and if you want a salad, they make it for you fresh in front of you. And if you go to the meat section and you pick out the cuts of meat you want and they cook it for you, season it exactly how you want it, just perfectly. And you can go to the Indian section and you can go to the sushi section and you can go to the Chinese section and you can go to the seafood section and you can go to the dessert section. That's awesome. They had this massive, massive chocolate fountain and I just want to stick my mouth under it and drink, but they don't let you. So we go there, and two years ago, this stuck in my head so clearly, two years ago we went there and two of our staff got stopped before we even walked into the restaurant. One was wearing a really nice hat, and he was told he had to take it off. And he was like, oh, I wasn't going to have it at the table. No, no, you cannot wear the hat in the restaurant. Oh, so he takes off his hat. The other guy was told he had to put his jacket on because his T-shirt wasn't nice enough. It was just a plain T-shirt, like no, no pictures on or anything. And I remember when we were walking to the table, he put his jacket on, I remember when we were walking to the table and they told me he had to leave it on for the whole time he was in the restaurant. And I just happened to say to somebody, whoever it was standing beside me, I was like, I wonder what they would have done if he didn't have a jacket. And the waiter heard me and turned around and said, um, we actually have jackets in the store and he would have had to have worn one of those. I was like, oh, interesting. But they have standards there. 
you have to live up to the standard. If you are not dressed appropriately, you actually can't go in. But, so last year when we went, we all knew and we all dressed appropriately. See, Scripture says very little about the clothes that Jesus wore. We know what John the Baptist wore because they're giving us details. We know what the religious leaders wore because if you read through the Bible, it tells you. But the clothing of Christ is not mentioned very often. There's one reference to his garments that we need to take note of. John 19, verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which says, they divided my garment among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Scripture in the Bible often describes our behavior as the clothes that we wear. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In Psalm 109:18 it says, As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so he let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. You see, our garments can symbolize our character. And like his garment, Jesus' character was seamless. It was in one accord. It was unified. It was uninterrupted perfection. The character of Jesus is a seamless fabric that comes from heaven to earth. And it comes in such a way that we know that whatever the Father is saying, that Jesus just does. You see, when Christ was nailed to the cross, they removed all of his clothes his robe, and he had to put on a whole new wardrobe, wardrobe of nakedness. He was stripped before his own mother and his family. He was stripped before the people, and he was shamed. The indignity of failure, for a few hours he hung there in pain, and, it, and what it looked like was that the religious leaders had won. Christ appeared to have lost, and he was shamed before his accusers. Worst of all, is he actually had to wear sin. First Peter 2 verse 24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree, that we, having died to sins, might, for, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are, were healed. The clothing of cross on, uh, Christ on the cross is sin. Your sin and my sin. See, what happened was he took off his perfect purity and he took off his perfect garment and he put on our patchwork cloak of greed, pride, selfishness, sin. And he wore it so that we could wear his righteousness. Galatians 3.27 says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Thing is, it wasn't enough that he went to prepare you a feast. It wasn't enough that he went to prepare you a seat. It wasn't enough that he covered the cost of your entry into the restaurant or that he paid for the transportation into the banquet. He did something else because he knew you couldn't go and dress the way you were. He knew you couldn't wear the clothing that you had on, the clothing of sin. So what he did was he gave you his. He gave you his garments and he put yours on so that you will be properly dressed, so that you will be allowed entrance into that banquet. And he did that just for you. The last one I wanted to look at today 
is God's promise in the path, which is that I will not abandon you. I was really lucky earlier, early last year to go to Numea. I love Numea. I could quite happily live in Numea. And not just because it was a beautiful place, like and it is, it's, it's a gorgeous place. And not just because with all the French influence, the food is amazing, which it was. But my heart actually broke for the people. We spent uh, some time talking to some of the locals and the Kanak people, and, and they are an orphan nation. This is a nation that has been, been abandoned by France. Uh, they have been just abandoned. And honestly, my heart just breaks. And they need Jesus. There is no Pentecostal movement within New, uh, within New Caledonia. So I'm really believing that, that we're going to plant a church there because they need Jesus. One of the things that we got to do as we did this, this tour, we hopped on this bright orange and green train and Tiki toured around Numea. And one of the things that they have, and I'm not going to say it in French because I can't pronounce it, but the translation is they have what they call Our Lady of the Pacific. And Our Lady of the Pacific, when we were there, was actually being redone. It's an open-air church up on this hill. And it's a Catholic church, obviously. So you go up there, and they were, doing all, they were repairing it while we were up there, but we could still walk around. And everything's written in French um, or Latin. Um, so we didn't actually understand what it was, but thankfully my nephew Celeste, who goes to St. Paul's, he was there. And because it's a Catholic school, he actually knew what each of these things we were looking at were. And so as we went around, he said, oh, this is that and this is that. Turns out that these are the 14 stations of the cross. This is just a representative, apparently in, in the Catholic Church globally, they actually have a lot of these set up around the place. And there is a road, the most notorious road in the world, called the Via Della Rosa, I think is how you say it, and it's called the Way of Sorrows. And according to tradition, this is the route that Jesus took, going from Pilate's palace to the cross. And it's... The path is marked by 14 different stations, and they're called the 14 stations of the cross. And it's things that mark different things, like Pilate's verdict on Jesus, um, the words that Jesus spoke, where he stumbled here, where Simon picked up the cross and continued to carry it. So all these stations are marked. And as, as Christians, you can do a pilgrimage, and you can walk through, and you can actually stop at each of these stations. And, and I, believe, I believe it will be a very powerful experience. And each one leads you to, this final journey, to Christ's final journey. Is it an accurate thing? I don't know. I don't think so because Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 and again in AD 35. But it doesn't really matter if it's not accurate. We do know where the path started. The path started when Jesus left heaven and made his way to earth to us. And he came armed with nothing more than a passion and desire to win your heart. That was it. That was his sole goal. He came to earth just to win you over. He came looking. He, what he wanted to do was to come and bring his children home, bring his children back into relationship with him. The Bible calls us reconciliation. And the path to the cross tells us just how far Jesus was prepared to go. Romans 5 verse 11 says, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you know what usually keeps us away from that? It's pride and shame. You wouldn't know it, but they're actually two sides of the same coin. You see, pride puffs out her chest and shame hangs her head. Pride boasts and shame hides. Pride seeks to be seen and shame seeks to avoid. These emotions actually have the same parentage. These emotions come from the same place and have the same impact. And each 
both of those emotions seek to do the same thing, and that is to keep you away from, from your father, keep you away from relationship with God. See, pride says that you're actually too good for him, and shame says that you'd never be good enough. Pride drives you away, and shame will keep you away. It says that pride goes before a fall. Shame is what keeps you from getting up after you've fallen. And I just wanted to read you a story as we finish. This is not a story that I wrote, this is, and it's a Christmas story, so bear with me. Five-year-old Madeline climbed into her father's lap. Did you have enough to eat, he asked her. Smiling, she patted her tummy. I can't eat anymore. Did you have some of your grandma's pie? A whole piece. Joe looked across the table at his mom. Looks like you filled us up. Don't think we'll be able to do anything tonight but go to bed. Madeline put her little hands on either side of his face. Oh, but Papa, it's Christmas Eve and you said we could dance. Joe feigned a poor memory. Did I? Wow, I don't remember saying anything about dancing. Grandma smiled and shook her head as she began clearing the table. But Papa, Madeline pleaded, we always dance on Christmas Eve. Just you and me, remember? A smile burst from beneath his beneath his thick moustache. Of course I remember, darling, how could I forget? And with that he stood and took her hand in his and for a moment, just a moment, his wife was alive again. And the two were walking into the den to spend another night before Christmas as they had spent so many dancing away the evening. They would have danced the rest of their lives, but then came the surprise pregnancy and the complications. Madeline survived, but her mum did not. And he was left Joe, the thick-handed butcher, to raise his Madeline alone. Come on, Papa, she tugged his hand. Let's dance before everyone arrives. And she was right, because soon the doorbell would ring and the relatives would fill the floor and the night would pass. But for now, it was just Papa and Madeline. Rebellion flew into Joe's world like a Minnesota blizzard, about the time she was old enough to drive. Madeline decided she was uh, old enough to lead her own life, and that life did not include her father. I should have seen it coming, Joe would say. But the life of me, I didn't. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to handle the pierced nose and the tight shirts. He didn't understand the late nights and the poor grades. And most of all, he didn't know when to speak and when to be quiet. She, on the other hand, had it all figured out. She knew when to speak to her father, never. She knew when to be quiet, always. The pattern was reversed, however, with the lanky, tattooed kid from down the street. He was no good, and Joe knew it. And there was no way he was going to allow his daughter to spend Christmas Eve with that kid. You'll be with us tonight, young lady. You'll be at your grandmother's house eating her pie, and you'll be with us on Christmas Eve. Eve. Though they were at the same table, they might as well have been on different sides of town. Madeline played with her food and said nothing. Grandma tried to talk to Joe, but he was in no mood to chat. Part of him was angry, part of him was heartbroken, and the rest of him would have given anything to know how to talk to the girl who once sat on his lap. Soon relatives arrived, bringing with them a welcome into the awkward silence. As the room filled with noise and people, Joe sat on, stayed on one side and Madeline sat suddenly on the other. Put on the music, Joe, reminded one of his brothers, and so he did. Thinking she would be honored, he turned and walked to his daughter. Will you dance with your papa tonight? The way she huffed and turned, you would have thought he had insulted her. And in full view of the family, she walked out the front door and marched down the sidewalk, leaving her father alone, very much alone. Madeline came back that night, but not for long. Joe never faulted her for leaving. After all, what was it like being the daughter of a butcher? In their last days together, he had tried so hard. He made her favorite dinner, but she didn't want to eat. 
He invited her to a movie, but she stayed in her room. Sorry. Uh, and he bought her a new dress, and she didn't even say thank you. But then there was that spring day. He left work early to be at the house when she arrived home from school. A friend saw her and the boyfriend in the vicinity of the bus station, and the authorities confirmed the purchase of a ticket to Chicago. Where she went from there was anybody's guess. The scrawny boy with tattoos had a cousin, and the cousin worked the night shift at a convenience store south of Houston. For a few bucks a month, he would let the runaway stay in his apartment at night, but they had to be out during the day, which was fine with them. They had big plans. He was going to be a mechanic, and Madeline just knew she could get a job at a department store. Of course, he knew nothing about cars, and she knew even less about getting a job. But you don't think of things like that when you're intoxicated on freedom. After a couple of weeks, the cousin changed his mind, and the day he announced his decision, the boyfriend announced his, and Madeline found herself facing the night with no place to sleep or hand to hold. It was actually the first of many such nights. A woman in the park told her about a homeless shelter near the bridge. For a couple of bucks, she could get a bowl of soup and a cot. A couple of bucks was about all she had. She'd used her backpack as a pillow and her blanket as a jacket. Oh, and her jacket as a blanket. The room was so rowdy it was hard to sleep. Madeline turned her face to the wall and for the first time in several days thought of the whiskered face of her father as he would kiss her goodnight. But as her eyes began to water, she refused to cry. She pushed the memory deep inside and determined not to think about it anymore. She'd gone too far to go back. The next morning, the girl in the cot beside her showed her a fistful of money as for you made it from dancing on tables. This is the last night I'll have to stay here, she said. Now I can pay for my own place. They told me they were looking for another girl. You should come by. And she pulled out a matchbook that had the address. Madeline's stomach turned at the thought. All she could mumble was, I'll think about it. She spent the rest of the week desperately searching for work. And at the end of the week, when it was time to pay her bill at the shelter, she reached in and all she had was that matchbook. I won't be staying here tonight, she said, and walked out the door. Hunger has a way of softening our convictions. If Madeline knew anything, she knew how to dance. Her father had taught her. And now the men, the age of her father, watched her. She didn't rationalize it. She didn't think about it. She just simply did her work and took their money. She went. She might never have thought about it all except for the letters. The cousin brought them, not one or two, but a whole box full, all addressed to her, all from her father. Your old boyfriend must have squealed on you. These come two or three a week, complained the cousin. Give him your address. Oh, but she couldn't do that. He might find her. Nor could she bear to open the envelopes. She knew what they said. He wanted her home. But if he knew what she was doing, he wouldn't be writing to her. It seemed less painful not to read them. So she didn't. Not that week or the next when the cousin brought more, nor the next when he came again. She kept them in the dressing room at the club, organized according to the postmark. She ran her finger over the top of each one, but couldn't bring herself to open them. Most days she was able to numb the emotions. Thoughts of home and thoughts of shame were shoved actually into the same part of her heart so that they were entwined. But there were occasions when the thoughts were too strong to resist. Like the time she saw a dress in the clothing store window, the dress was the same color as the one her father had purchased for her. She would give anything now to, to feel his arms wrapped around her again. She'd give a thousand of those dresses. In time, the leaves fell and the air chilled. The mail came and the cousin complained and the stack of letters grew. Still, she refused to send her father an address. She refused to read the letter. Then a few days before Christmas Eve, another letter arrived. Same shape, same color, but this one had no postmark. 
and it was not delivered by the cousin. It was sitting on her dressing room table. A couple of days ago, a big man stepped by and asked me to give you this, explained one of the dancers. He said you'd understand the message. He was here, she asked anxiously. The woman shrugged, yeah, he was. Madeline swallowed hard and looked at the envelope. She opened it and removed the card. I know where you are, it read. I know what you do. This doesn't change what I feel, and it doesn't change what I've said in every letter, and it's still true. But I don't know what you've said in the letters, Madeline declared. She pulled the letter from the top of the stack and read it. Then she pulled a second, and then she pulled a third, and each letter had the same sentence, and each sentence asked the same question. And in moments, the floor was littered with paper and her face was streaked with tears. Within an hour, she was on a bus. I might just make it in time. She barely did. The relatives were starting to leave, and Joe was helping Grandma in the kitchen. Joe, someone's here to see you. Joe stepped out of the kitchen and he stopped. In one hand, the girl held a backpack, and in the other, she held the card. Joe saw the question in her eyes. The answer is yes, she said to her father. If the invitation is still good, the answer is yes. Joe swallowed hard. Oh my, he said, the invitation is good. And so the two danced again on Christmas Eve. And on the floor near the door rested a letter with Madeline's name and her father's request. Will you come home and dance with your papa again? I remember when God asked me to come home. Do you remember? Do you? That is what keeps me doing this. Every day, I remember what he saved me from, and every day, I am so eternally grateful. I want you to take a moment. I want you to stand to your feet, and I want you to close your eyes. In Bible college, they told us when you preach, you always have to leave everybody on a high. You always have to leave everybody victorious. I have deliberately chosen not to do that because I want you to remember. I want you to remember what he saved you from. I want you to remember how it felt when, when you first felt him accept you and when you first felt him love on you. And this whole week, as this week goes by, I want there to be moments when you remember you might be in the shower, you might be in your car, you might just, it's just a moment. So that when you come back next Sunday to experience the glory that is Resurrection Sunday, your heart will be changed. You will experience such joy and such gratefulness. Because I think we forget I never want to forget what he's done. I never want to forget that moment when all my sins were washed away. I never want to forget that moment when he loved me enough to take on my sin, when he loved me enough to become the beast so that I could become the beauty. So just take a moment right now. I don't know your journey. I only know mine. But you know where you were when he found you. And I want that to be what you think of this week.
God, that this week we would remember with hearts open that we would come next Sunday joyful, waiting for that resurrection moment. God, that this is the week that we completely commit and surrender ourselves to you, where we know that the beast that lives in us is becoming the beauty that is Jesus. Amen.